All right, the scripture passage this evening comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. These are the words of our Lord. Um, You know, one of the creepier things um, about parenting is realizing how much your children imitate you. Uh, a number of years ago, my wife and I, when our children were sort of in that smaller stage, they're kind of getting that preteen zone that uh, I have no idea what that's about yet. But um, we remember listening uh, to my two daughters have conversations with each other uh, in, um, in their rooms. And my oldest child always sort of tended to be sort of the bossy one. If you're like the oldest child of your family, you're probably very bossy. Um, and Anna Grace, at one point, sometimes when Caroline would do something or say something out of line, didn't you remember overhearing uh, Anna Grace one time be like, Caroline, what were you thinking? And it suddenly occurred to us that that's exactly what we say to them. <laughs> like, oh, Anna Grace, what were you thinking? And it's really, it's very terrifying to hear the words that you say sort of come out of your children's mouths, you know, and have be repeated back to you because you're like, ooh, <laughs> I mean, you do a little editing of the things that I say. Um, But look, I I want, that's kind of a negative example, but notice, though, that most of the time, um, imitation usually goes with what we might call intimacy. You ever thought of this? Um, The very close brothers' imitation intimacy, in many ways, we will always, as people, imitate the the power, uh, the thing, the, the pursuit Whatever it is that we hold most dear in our lives, whatever we hold most close to our hearts, what we tend to do is to imitate those things. Does that make sense? We become like those things from which we draw life. There's a power in imitation. 
And so Paul begins to give some exhortations at the beginning of chapter 5 in Ephesians that are full of, (laughs) that can be summed up by what he's saying in in be someone who imitates God. It's the opening line there in verse 5. Be imitators of God. And of course he goes through and describes that. But now look, I'll be honest with you, as we dive into these instructions, um, they have teeth in them. And for a lot of religious people, when they encounter some of these instructions that Paul give, gives us, they begin to see the exhortation to imitate without the idea of intimacy behind it. And I want to encourage you to understand that when the Bible encourages you to imitation, it is assuming chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Ephesians. In other words, you cannot launch into taking seriously these instructions that Paul gives without realizing just how much of an intimate relationship God wants to establish with you first. In other words, the the, the imitation is supposed to extend from that and supposed to be a product of it as we do. Forget that and this passage will crush you. Uh, Remember it and honestly, it will give you some very helpful ways of looking at your life. Paul looks and says you can understand imitation of God in three different ways. And he uses this metaphor to walk. He's always talking about walking. And it's just a metaphor for as you go along your way. So there's three things he wants you to walk in. Number one, he wants you to walk in love. Number two, he wants you to walk in light. And number three, finally, he wants you to walk in wisdom. Okay? Walk in love. Walk in light. Walk in wisdom. Let's take the first one first. To walk in love. Look. In verse 2, Paul tells us again, and he's told us this a number of times, that we find our motivation to love one another in Jesus' love of us. In other words, Paul is suggesting that in order to be a loving person, you have to have been shown an intensity of love that comes from the Father in Christ. Right? Now, you're thinking to yourself, that is such a lovely thought. I don't think I could hear that enough times coming from the Apostle Paul. Until all of a sudden, in the next verse, (laughs) almost without warning it seems, there's this like rabid, wild-eyed diatribe against sexual immorality of all kinds. (laughs) Be imitators of God. Stop committing sexual immorality. And there's a sense in which you're kind of going, okay, how did we get to this topic suddenly out of the blue here? Well, I'll be honest with you. I think that this is a huge issue. And For the sake of our discussion tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about sexuality tonight, but we're actually going to talk a good bit more about it next week when we look at what Paul says about marriage at the end of chapter 5. So there's a marriage discussion coming next week. So don't think I didn't try to get that commercial in there. Thank you very much. So come back next week. Marriage, what? Uh, um, We have to understand something about sexuality. And to be honest with you, we've already hinted on the meaning of Christian sexuality. And it's something that we oftentimes miss. You see, Christians believe and have always taught that the Creator's most vivid gift to show us what our relationship to Him is supposed to be like, at least in terms of the depth of intimacy, is most vividly pictured for us in the act of human sexuality. Did you catch that? Sex was not created by God to be a way for human beings to every now and then enjoy themselves, as enjoyable as it might be. 
The reason for the intimacy of sexuality was, we believe as Christians, to be something of a pointer, something of a metaphor to allow us to have a physical experience, maybe I could use the word little s, sacrament, of knowing exactly the depth of intimacy that our creator wants to know about us. We've talked about this before, that this depth of relationship that God wants for the church to have was sort of vividly pictured in the Trinitarian imagery of God, that we are created in the image of a God who is himself a relationship. And because he is a relationship, our human marriages are pictures of that. Does that make sense? We've talked about this. But unless you understand this, you won't understand how often the Bible refers to our relationship to God in very sexual terms. Now, bear with me before this creeps you out. <laughs> Isaiah 62.4 says, As a young man marries a maiden, so will I, this is the Lord talking, marry you. In other words, so will God's love be for his people. In other words, God says, if you want to know how I'm going to rescue my people, look at how a newly married man treats his wife. Okay. Now, again, if you look, go, oh, it's that weird Old Testament talking again. Well, how about this? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is warning people not to listen to false teachers. Don't listen to false teachers. Why? And in verse 2 he says, because I feel a divine jealousy for you. For I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. <laughs> Again, imagery that would creep you out if you didn't know what he was talking about. Sex is not an end in itself in the Christian mind. It's saying something about God. And so while Paul is writing verse 2, he's thinking to himself about the intimacy, the imitation that we should have of God, the desire to want to follow him, to, to be like him. And suddenly his mind goes to sexual imagery. And the reason why is I hope you can see, because he's looking and saying that you cannot experience the wondrous physical sacrament, if you will, of God's love for his people, if you take his most vivid sign, picturing that intimacy, and twist it into something it was never intended to be. Does that make sense? That's the reason why he's thinking that. Sex was given to picture that reality. And I would argue that it's the only way in which sex actually works well. Sex will be your Sex will tyrannize us if we look at it as being an end in itself. Some of you know this. Some of you know this with oh too much experience. And Paul is saying that's never its design. It was always intended to remind you of your relationship to God. So therefore, if you begin to sort of dabble, uh, twist, distort, and abuse the human action of sexuality, how is it possible for you to have a relationship with this God? And of course, his answer is, you don't. Look, y'all, I'll be honest with you. By the time you get to that verse there, especially there in verse um, 6, I mean, that's, the, the, those words have some teeth to them. <laughs> you know, let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And these people have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Whoa. Okay, let's back up a second. First of all, what is Paul condemning here? Well, the first thing he says, he condemns immorality. That's the Greek word porneia, porn. I don't think I needed to find that word for you. He's talking about, he's talking about illicit sexual behavior. 
And then he uses the word impurity. The Greek word for impurity is kind of interesting. It's the word akatharsia. Do you hear the word catharsis there? What are we, say, what are we talking about when we say that um, we had a very cathartic experience? We mean that we were cleansed of something. Paul says that impurity is an catharsis, an anti-cleansing. In other words, it's getting dirty. Dirty things, things that are dirty, things that make us filthy. And basically, he's this, in other words, those two things cover every type of sexual sin, whether it be outside of marriage, sex outside of marriage, or um, sex in a non-married context. In other words, everything from, from doing it to shacking up. Paul is saying all of these things come under the admonition of sexual purity. And of course, he adds at the very end, covetousness, to which you're saying, where did covetousness come from? Well, he's talking about that in a sexual context. Covetousness, of course, is talking about you know, not being satisfied with where you are in life. So what's he saying? He's saying anytime you engage in selfish sexuality, you are proving, you are distorting the gift that God gave to let us know what kind of intimacy he wants with us. And if you destroy that, how can you say that you have an inheritance with him? Then he goes on even to say that not only that, it's even improper to joke about sexuality. Sex is too precious and it is too powerful to be turned into filthy jokes. Toilet humor, right? Finally, he looks and says that if you know people that are so involved in that way, don't even associate with them. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that we don't have social contact with them. Uh, Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to sort of send them the message of the gospel, right? What he means is to make associations with them. In other words, don't join them in their activities. So do you see Paul's progression here? He says, don't misuse sex, don't speak wrongly about sex, and don't join in with those who are themselves abusing sex. Look, and then he brings down the hammer there in verse 5 by saying, because anybody who does these things does not have an inheritance. Now bear with me for a second because I realize that once you dive into passages like this, our immediate knee-jerk reaction is to well up a lot of guilt because we live in a very hyper-sexualized culture here. But I want you to walk with me through how, how much medicine this passage can be because Paul is linking a desire for warped sexuality, listen, 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 to something that is lacking in your intimacy with God. Please catch this. The Bible is saying, and Paul is saying, that sort of sexuality twisted will always have echoes in something eternal. To the point of saying that if you find yourself obsessively desiring sexuality that you know to be something that God forbids, it ought to be revealing something inside of you that you might have missed along the way of what God really wants. Does that make sense? In other words, there's some wonderful diagnosis that Paul is doing for you if we'll listen to it and work through the guilt that comes through it when we hear it. Remember the word inheritance? This word has come up before. You remember? Back in chapter 1, we talked about the fact of this amazing thought that Paul says that God has his own inheritance. Remember how he talked about this? And what was that inheritance? His inheritance was in the saints. And we talked about this mind-blowing idea that God looks and says that his inheritance is you. (laughs) Having you happy and holy with him is what makes God feel wealthy. 
There's that word inheritance again. I find that interesting. Because what, 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 we've said, or what we've said this whole semester is that the real joy of the gospel is finding out that because of what Jesus do, did, God looks at us as if we are precious to him. So much so that we can be spoken of as his inheritance. And so Paul looks and says, he uses that word when he's talking about intimacy. Look, y'all, struggles with warped sexuality, obsession with warped sexuality, is supposed to get you thinking about your relationship to God. I mean, I'm simply going to leave that there because I'm, I'm, I'm granting the fact that sexuality is a very complex aspect of who we are. We struggle through our sexual lives, especially in college. But I simply want to offer you something that it very well may be that one of the reasons why sexuality has tyrannized us the way in which it has is because we've thought of it, we have, we have elevated it to a level that it was never intended to be. And in elevating it to that level, it suddenly begins to curse us and it begins to command us and we experience addictions. We experience an inability to sort of simply move past it. And I simply want to place a thought in your mind of saying, is it not possible that God is screaming to us in that, in that struggle? That he's saying, I need for you to find something in me that you have been searching for as you knock on the door of a prostitute. Does that sound blasphemous to you? <laughs> That's actually a quote from C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon used to say back 120, 30 years ago, that when a man stands and knocks on the door of a prostitute, he's actually knocking on the door of God. And we think, oh, you can't say that. That's awful. What is he saying? He means that our sexuality was intended to be an expression of seeing something in God. Look, y'all, I want to suggest to you, this is, a, this is a great first step to the healing of our sexual selves. Is to begin to see that God longs for intimacy with us. And when we gain that intimacy with him and understand what it is in Christ, we learn to dethrone sexuality. And in many ways, we begin to deal with it from, the, uh, from its roots out. Hmm. Food for thought. Um, that's my first point. Paul says, I want you to walk in love. Walk in love, and especially as that love has its expression in sexuality. Secondly, he then goes on to say, I want you also to walk in light. Paul keeps talking about light with this second sort of metaphor that he picks on. What is he talking about? Notice it's very interesting, I think, the way it's worded there, that he does not say that people used to be in darkness, but now they are in the light. But what he says is that they themselves are actually now light. It's not that you're in a light coming from some other place, but you are now light. And, of course, this light is in the Lord. In other words, the light that a Christian has doesn't necessarily come from itself, but it comes, it's derived from the Lord's work in him. But that doesn't take away from the fact that Paul says, if you know God in Christ, you are light. Well, what does that mean? Well, clearly he's talking about the sexual sin, specifically that it sort of pervaded uh, his culture and our culture. But I think the principle works for all kinds of sin, does it not? Because it's saying, he's saying that as Christians... When God begins to conform you into an image of holiness, you become a light to the world. You become something that is light in dark places. In other words, if you are light, then your life begins to possess a beauty that when it comes in contact with other parts of your environment, the beauty of your life shows other things for what they really are. You catch that? 
It exposes the world for the way in which they deal with things. For example, if you are a Christian, then your very presence shows up the dishonesty in your business. It just does. Why? Because you chose not to cheat on your time card. You chose not to uh, um, uh, uh, cheat on your taxes. It shows the dishonesty that's there. You show the gossip in your office pool or in your Greek house or in your friendship group. In other words, your presence will show the racism in your neighborhood. Your presence will show the corruption in our politics. Your presence will show the promiscuity at your party. A Christian becomes light. Just by simply being a Christian, you show racism for what it is. You, sh- you make racism look gross. You make promiscuity look slutty by simply being what you are. In other words, you're saying, I'm going to live by this truth. And see, look, our life is light by its order. And because it's, our, because it's light, it shows up other things, true colors. Have you ever thought about that? You really don't see colors for real until you flip on a light and be able to see it from, from something that's vivid. In many ways, God looks and says, when I begin to work in you, I flip on a light. And you need to expect that your light is actually going <laughs> to show other things for what they are. Look, y'all, this is what I think he means in verse 14 when he says that for anything that becomes visible is light. Look, y'all, you got to remember this, that when a Christian actually makes a decision to, oh, I don't know, say no to something that he knows in his heart is something he should not be involved in and says yes to the right things, you know what happens? Stuff changes. People change. Institutions change. The machinery of change begins to work when Christians simply begin to look and say, my job is to simply do what God has told me to do. What did he tell me to do? Well, got ten commandments. Start with those. (laughs) Once you master those, he'll get you some more. Good luck with that. (laughs) Look, the Bible's simply saying that there's a contagious aspect to a Christian's good deeds. Does that make sense? Who knows the kinds of crazy things that have been thwarted in life purely through Christians doing what they ought to do? This is my favorite example of this. I've been using it for years because I was, I've not ceased being amazed by how this all came down. Some of you were actually uh, on the coast when Katrina blew in. Some of you are coast people and you know exactly how this whole thing did. Do y'all remember, for us of us sort of in the north parts of the state, do you remember watching the television in the days after Katrina came and just destroyed the coast and New Orleans and everything else? We all watched in horror, if you'll remember, the city of New Orleans descend into absolute anarchy. Um, and three days after that, I went to go get a haircut. And uh, I, I go to a, a real barber, like with a real barber pole. I don't, I don't go to someone who's a stylist. Gentlemen, if you go to a stylist... <laughs> kidding about that it's a real barber pole um <laughs> but in my barber shop there's a lot of um like barber shop banter you know what i'm saying people sort of shouting things and whatnot and i remember hearing one guy go off as we were watching the television they had video of like people walking around you know shooting one another I mean, it's just incredible video saying i mean look at and utter condemnation and condescension in his voice he was like would you look at those people I mean, that's the kind of stuff that you get down in New Orleans. 
How many people thought about that? And you know, I sat there in my chair and I thought to myself, that's a little too easy. That's a little too easy. You take away our food, our water, our shelter, every sort of basic need that we have. Do you really want to say that you're going to do any better than that? Hmm, I don't think so. Look, but here's my point. Do you realize what happened in the days after that? Christians got in their pickup trucks, loaded up their, you know, uh, their, their, their trucks with water and gas and generators and drove down to that city. Do we have any idea the kind of anarchy that was thwarted simply because Christians got up and began to be light? They were light. This is what we do. I am a Christian. Jesus showed me a love beyond imagination. And he came into my life when it was a disaster. And so you're telling me that there's a disaster in New Orleans on the coast? Where do I go? That's what we do. And who is to say, the human, who is to say what kind of human suffering was deterred because Christians came in and did what they were supposed to do and were what they were supposed to be? Christians, you are a light. You are a light in your sorority. You are a light in your fraternity. You are a light in your classroom among your roommates simply by doing what God has told us to do. So, secondly, he wants us to walk in light. We walk in love, first of all. We walk in light, second of all. Thirdly and finally, we are to walk in wisdom. Paul says that imitating God means that we walk in wisdom. Uh, my favorite definition of wisdom came from some a Keller series I was listening to years ago on the topic where he says this. He says, wisdom is nothing more than competence with regards to the realities of life. I love that definition. Wisdom is competence with regards to the realities of life. In other words, and, and there's other ways in which we discuss this in small groups and whatnot, but Christianity is not a life of living by the rules. I mean, there are rules, but it's much more than that. Paul wants us to, be, to go beyond the rules and actually to live as someone who's not unwise, but wise, right? In other words, the idea is, is that we are the ones who are studying the nuances of life. So much so that we're picking up on decisions and we make decisions that enhance the world rather than contributing to its decay. Does that make sense? Um, it's worth noting that, you know, 95% of the questions that you'll wrestle with as far as what to do, what major do I choose, what city do I go to, are not covered specifically in the Bible. You know, there's not a, there's not a first less 317 that says less, you shall go into the ministry after you finish, your, uh, after you finish college. Never said that. We look for the Bible to be that kind of answer book, but it's not. It's not intended to be that. It's intended to sort of give you a sense of God's truth so that you can what? Walk in wisdom. To grow in competence with those things. And then he starts to get specific with three things. What does it mean to walk in wisdom? Well, he offers a couple suggestions. Number one, he's saying, you are wise when you make the most of your time. Make the most of your time. Christians have come to be ones. Well, there it is in verse 16. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Christians value time. You want to know why Christians value time? Because time is a part of God's creation. And God gives all kinds of instructions to people about dealing with your time because he's a God of order. And there's a sense in which he never wastes any time. And so we can expect that when we begin to honor that order, our lives end up becoming redemptive. That's the reason why the NIV translation, some of you have the NIV translation, see that it says to 
where it says in the ESV to make the most of, it says to redeem the time. I love that. You realize why that's important. It's saying your life is supposed to be somewhat, it's supposed to be lived as a great calling back to all of creation about how God intended the world to be. Make use of your time. Look and realize that these moments are precious. Hey, look, y'all. <laughs> Freshman, you're 25% of the way through college. I love to talk to y'all about this because you're all going, oh, you're right, I'm almost through with my freshman year. Seniors, am I right? Four years have gone by. It was like that. Look, y'all, redeem the time. Find those things that are worth your time. And Paul says you'll redeem creation in the process. You know what? In the, eventually you'll become wise because of it. Secondly, stop getting drunk. <laughs> really? I mean, what he says, do not be drunk with wine, he says. Or what is it? Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. All right. Again, you're thinking to yourself, really? Paul's talking about wisdom, redeeming the time. Stop getting drunk. What? Where is... It sounds quite random for Paul all of a sudden to go this. Look, y'all, bear with me. Um, I realize that alcohol is a rather huge issue on this campus, and I don't want to belabor this too much. But what he says is, is you got to be careful because it's debauchery to be drunk. And there's a lot of people that want to be like, well, you know, what is drunk? You know, I mean, I can have two or three and be a little buzzed, but um, I mean, I ain't drunk or nothing. I found my way home, didn't I? <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> Look, the, the word there, and, and we love to mess with these definitions to excuse our behavior. The word there means reckless living. In other words, Paul is saying the minute you get reckless with your actions, your words, your thoughts, you're drunk. That's the definition. Recklessness. As soon as we get to a point where alcohol has become that, it is reckless. And we're looking at ourselves and saying, well, you know, what's wrong with that? Sometimes less is the way I kind of blow off some steam. Drunkenness is the way in which I do this. Look, because, because God is looking and saying, because it wrecks your life. Because it's unwise to be a drunk. And, and if, I may be, if I may be so forthcoming with you, um, I'll be honest with you, for those of you who are saying, yeah, I mean, I'm drunk, what, two, three times a week? That's what we call the legal definition of an alcoholic. If someone were to come and follow you around for a week, would they diagnose you as an alcoholic? That's worth asking. But y'all, what I want you to simply notice is this. What he says is, is don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now you're thinking, oh, okay, Les. <laughs> Next time I'm, you know, wanting to grab that fourth, you know, beer. You know what? This is really not a good idea for me. I, I think I'll try the Holy Spirit instead. <laughs> is that really what you're talking about? Okay, look, don't insult Paul that he's that stupid. What he's saying is notice the contrast. Do not be drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, you've got to think here for a second. What does the Holy Spirit primarily do? Why would he say being filled with the Holy Spirit would somehow help us deal with our drunkenness? I want to submit to you it's because the Holy Spirit is primarily supposed to tell you that you belong to him. Jesus says, when I go, I'm going to send my spirit and he will bear witness of me. And so we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be constantly reminded that we belong to him. And this undergirds my premise, that what that means is, is being drunk means you don't know who you are. Sorry. 
I think the Bible looks into saying the real root of your drunkenness in the same way that sexuality is connected to your relationship to God, your drunkenness is a result of you being utterly insecure about who you are. Drunkenness is effective for that. You realize it, don't you? Drunkenness lowers our inhibitions. I love people that say that. Well, you know, I, I drink because it lowers my inhibitions. Okay, fine. But if you always have to be drunk in any social setting of any importance, does that not suggest that the rest of the time when you are not drunk, that you are severely inhibited? Did you catch that? In other words, not comfortable in your own shoes? Mm. We are an alcohol-soaked culture at Ole Miss. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not a teetotaler. I'm not one of those like, you know, alcohol is the liquid of the devil. I'm not one of those people. I believe there are legitimate uses for alcoholic beverages. There, I said it. It's in the Bible. But here's the deal. To sh- for this campus to treat lightly this admonition to say, have you looked and thought that maybe your drunkenness has something to do with the fact that you are as wildly insecure as you are? You ever thought about that? Hmm. Thirdly and finally, and I'll finish with this. We're not only to make the most of time, we're not only supposed to stop getting drunk, but thirdly, we're supposed to give thanks. How? By submitting. <laughs> thankfulness should mark us all, but it's a thankfulness that shows itself in an ever, ever willingness to defer to other people. In other words, we're always ready to give other people the benefit of the doubt. That's what Paul is saying. To believe the best about people and not the worst. And notice what he says in verse 21. This is so wonderful. Paul can't even talk about us submitting to each other without saying, out of reverence for Christ. Now think about that. How does it reverence Christ for us to submit to one another? How does that work? Well, the answer is because he did that for us. (laughs) Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be clung to, but instead emptied himself, poured himself out, setting aside his glory, taking on the form of a servant. Look, y'all, we have a God who sort of submitted to the insult of humanity so that he could dwell among us and save us. You know what that means? It means that you can take a Saturday morning to go to the Western Hills part of town And serve for a morning simply because we know that that's the way he served me. That that I can plug into a summer camp this summer. Not because it's a job that'll look good on my resume and maybe make me a little money. But because here I got a chance to serve. (laughs) Here's a place where I got to actually submit myself to someone. To place myself beneath them. Because I serve a God who is willing to do that for me. I mean... (laughs) Like, i got to be honest with you. And when you go through some of these rules and you begin to see Paul's rather strict views on sexuality and alcohol and and, and Christian behavior, it can be overwhelming until you all of a sudden see that he's getting every bit of it from the light of the joy he gets in Christ. It's motivated by joy. Does that come anywhere close to your experience as a Christian? Or as an outside observer of Christians and one who looks at it from a distance. Is that anything close? Maybe the novelty of it and the thought of it might be enough to draw you into asking the question more. Consider that an invitation. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, would you be so gracious to us as to help us? Because to be quite honest with you, these, these admonitions that Paul gives us, they have a way of kind of cutting across a lot of excuses that we tend to make. There's a lot of things that we tend to say that well, we're under a lot of pressure, we got a lot of stress in our lives. You, know, you don't know how I feel about this person. And so we thank you that your word is still able to make us uh, uncomfortable because it means that you're still at work. It means that you've not let, left us to ourselves. But at the same time, Lord Jesus, it means that we're kind of, <laughs> we feel like we need to go back to the beginning again and look through it to, to say again, tell us again how much it is that you have loved us and submitted to us. Lord Jesus, would you please be very near to the sexually broken among us, to all of us who experience the, the, the heartbreak of sexual brokenness, to all of us who experience the, the, the tyranny of, of an overabsorption with drinking and getting drunk, to those of us who struggle with, with self-consciousness that keeps us from being able to be light to our communities, who waste time. Father, all these things, we, we confess to you that we are not loving, we are not light, and we are not wise. And so preach the gospel to our hearts as we sing this last song so that maybe in so considering and in so singing, you might work in us by your spirit a transformation that would change the world. We don't want anything less. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.